Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring some of that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. In today's episode, we're talking about risk takers. Who are they? How do they decide which risks to take and which ones to leave well alone? And in an industry that's so science and data-driven, how has Formula One become so heavily reliant on risk takers? Welcome to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things. But you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won. So it could be deemed that's, that's a failure. Hey everybody, welcome back. Thanks ever so much for joining me again. Now, before we get into this episode talking about taking risks, I would love it. I would really appreciate it if you could take just a moment to rate and review the podcast. It's a small thing. It really won't take you very long, but it makes a huge difference to the number of people that we're able to share this message with. So if you can spare just a quick moment, give it a quick rating wherever you get your podcast from and a very short review. That's all it takes. And I will be hugely, hugely grateful. So let's get into it then. Risk takers and risk taking. It's one of those things that I guess when we're kids, we're all taught that it's a bad thing. You know, we don't want to be taking risks. Our parents are always telling us to slow down, you know, stop running. You'll fall over. Stay away from that step. You'll trip. (laughs) These things are all done, of course, with the very best intentions when we're kids, because it's all thinking about our safety. The risks are very real at that young stage in life that we could injure ourselves or or hurt ourselves. And that's why we're often, we have it drummed into us that risks are bad. Taking risks are bad. Of course, as we get older, our horizons are broadened on life and we start to appreciate, certainly for most of us, that taking risks actually, if we want to succeed in life, if we want to get the very best out of whatever it is we're trying to achieve, taking risks can actually be one of the best things that we can ever possibly do. So that concept actually sort of goes against everything we were taught by our parents or people of authority when we're in the early stages of our lives. As we get older, people have all sorts of different perceptions of what risk is. Formula One engineers are very science and data-driven people, typically. Actually, those people are typically quite risk-averse. They need the science and the data to be able to prove to them that something's got a very good chance of working before they're willing to go for it, to give it a chance. They need evidence to support the decision that they're about to make. That's a a kind of dichotomy, really, with the idea that motorsport operates within this highly competitive environment, where actually, if we want to outdo the competition, if we want to be better than the rest, who are all operating at an elite level in Formula One terms, we have to be able to take risks. And yet these people that we employ in our teams are inherently against doing that. I remember when I was at McLaren in the latter stages of my time there, I was leading a process at the time of a transformation, of trying to, to adjust or change the culture within our organisation because I felt there were some major problems in terms of morale, in terms of people's confidence within the organization and allowing them to to be the best versions of themselves that they could be. So I had been through a series of meetings with Ron Dennis and Martin Whitmarsh in trying to instigate a period of change. 
Now, during that process, I walked into Martin Whitmarsh's office one day, and I remember this very clearly. I had an appointment, I walked in. Martin was sitting at his desk with his head in his hands, looking massively distressed and worried and troubled. And I sat down thinking, oh my goodness, what do I do here? And I said to him, everything, everything okay, Martin? And he said, how do I get a bunch of engineers, a bunch of people who inherently want to think inside the box, how do I get those people to think outside the box? He said, tell me that. That's one of the biggest challenges that I've have on my plate right now. And we sort of laughed it off as a little throwaway comment and a little joke. And we kind of got on with the, the meeting that we had planned. When I left that meeting, I couldn't help but think about the question that Martin had posed because it was all interlinked with what I was trying to do anyway in terms of changing the culture at McLaren. And so I began thinking about it more and more. And I'll come back to what I concluded from that in a moment, because the point is that everybody perceives risk in different ways. People perceive the same decision or what seems like the same risk in completely different ways. You know, for some people, choosing what to wear in the morning before they go to work is a risk. You know, are they going to be, is it worth them putting themselves in the uncomfortable position of choosing something outside of their comfort zone to wear? Something that they haven't worn for ages, perhaps, or something brand new that's not normally in their style repertoire. For some people, that is an enormous risk and will weigh on their mind for days almost, even after they've made that decision to wear it. When they go to work, it might be the one thing that's clouding all of their judgment because they're so self-conscious about what other people are thinking about what they wear. For other people, that's not even registering on the radar for them. For some people, they don't even care what other people think about what they're wearing and won't give it a second thought. But then for other people, risks like starting a new career, taking an absolute leap of faith into something enormous, something life-changing. Those are the risks that some people will spend time worrying about, but then ultimately make a decision. And perhaps for the person who worries about what they're going to wear in the morning, those risks are just in another stratosphere altogether and they couldn't even be contemplated. Just imagine if somebody like Frank Williams or Ron Dennis or Bernie Eccleston had never been able to take the risk back in the early days of starting a Formula One team or doing what they've done over the course of their careers. Huge risk-taking decisions that they had to make. Massive potential disastrous outcomes from some of those. But imagine if they hadn't been risk takers. Some of our favourite teams, even the sport that we all love ourselves, wouldn't, would be nothing like what it is today without those people taking those risks. So everybody has a different version of risk, a different variation on it, a different perception of what risk means to them. Imagine if Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak had never taken the risk to set up their company, Apple Computers, back in the late 70s. How different life might be today. We need risk takers in the world because they open doors that others are just too afraid to open. And beyond those doors are massive opportunities, not just for them, but for everybody else that can benefit off the back of that. So we need people to lead the charge into uncharted territories doesn't mean everybody can or has to do it but society absolutely needs those people and if we look at society 
the people who are able to take those risks, the people who are able to be brave enough to do that, to break new ground, well, ultimately, they are the most successful people in life. They are the people who are at the top of elite sport or at the top of elite business. Not always, but they are quite often the people that are happiest because they fulfill the desires within them to do things because they're willing to take risks to get there. So if certain people see risk very differently, and if Formula One has this challenge of needing people in their organisations who are willing to take risks to beat the competition, and yet by their very nature, the typical F1 engineer or the designer or the science geek that operates within the elite level of Formula One, if those people are typically risk averse, how on earth does an organisation somebody like Martin Whitmarsh, encourage those people to think outside the box. Come back to that question that he posed to me in that meeting. How do you get somebody who wants to stay within this little imaginary box to think outside of it? Well, I said I continued thinking about that question that Martin posed to me in a flippant throwaway comment during our meeting. I went away, thought about it. At the next Grand Prix, I'd been thinking all the way on the plane to the race. And when I got there, I bumped into Martin in the pit lane. He came and said hello. And we had a quick chat. And just before he left, I said, oh, Martin, by the way, I just remembered I had the answer to your question. He said, what question? The answer of how do you get uh, an engineer to start thinking outside the box when all he really wants to do is be very much contained in that box? And he sort of laughed. and went, oh, yeah, forgot about that. He said, go on, then what's the answer? I said, well, you remove the box. Take the box away. And he sort of chuckled and said, what are you talking about? (laughs) I said, well, look, the box that they are all operating within is obviously an imaginary one. It's one that exists only within the environment around them. It's because they believe that their industry or those type of people, the people that they operate with or within, they believe that things have to be done a certain way, that those people have to behave in a certain way, that those decisions have to be taken in a certain way. The only reason that that exists is because we as a company, if we're talking about our engineers, put them inside that box. They are race engineers or they are data analysts. Well, we've labeled them, which puts them inside that box. If we take away the box, if we free them up from all of those restrictions, perhaps they will start to think and look outside of that box in their thought process. And Martin said to me, look, that's really interesting. He said, "Um, now's not the place to have this conversation, but I'd love to have a chat about it further when we get back. And we did. We went back to the factory and we talked about this idea of how do you get people to take risks if that's not something they're particularly comfortable to do? Even though as an organisation, we absolutely need that if we're going to be better than the competition. Because if we do the same thing as the competition, we will ultimately be the same as the competition. If we want to be better than them, we need to take risks. We need to do things differently to the way that the competition are going to do them. That means taking risks. That means taking decisions that perhaps no one else is willing to take, or perhaps that no one else has taken before, thinking outside the box. I talked to Martin about how we needed to, as part of our changing culture at McLaren, we need to create an environment where people feel free enough and empowered enough to make decisions that may not be the ones that we might expect them to make. We need to free them up from the fear of failure. 
And that was the absolute key to all of this. I watched a, a football match at the weekend. I was watching, it's one of the top six teams, quality team full of quality players that six weeks ago were flying high at the top of the league. They were on amazing run of form and they were playing brilliantly. And I watched them six weeks ago. When I watched them this weekend, they were playing a very different type of football. They've had a run of really poor form. Results just haven't gone their way for the last two or three weeks. And you could tell in the way they were playing. Same players, still worth hundreds of millions of, of, of pounds, these, these professional footballers, still playing on the same pitch with the same size ball in the same environment, same conditions, and yet a very different style of football. The style that I watched this weekend was one of zero confidence. The midfielders were, instead of looking for that threading ball through the opposition defence to get the attackers in on goal, they were playing it backwards or they were playing it across the field sideways. It was a defensive play. Very rarely was anybody willing to take the risk of sending that risky ball through the defence to try and get somebody in for an attack. Rarely was anybody willing to take the risk of using the skill that they absolutely have and six weeks ago were very happy to use to take on another player in a one-on-one -on -one situation. Use their skill to get past them to start launching an attack on the opposition. It's simply because they were so low on confidence, they were terrified of things going wrong. If the fans and the media and maybe even their own environment within that club had put pressure on them to be better, to get things right all the time, they were unwilling to put themselves on the line to take that risky ball or to take that risky decision on the pitch. And that translated into a very defensive mindset. They were highly unlikely to score. And it's no coincidence that results weren't going their way when they were playing like that. Because the opposition just had to sit back and wait for their moment to pounce on a loose ball and off they were on the attack. It comes down to confidence. Now, is the environment within that football club one that helps those players to be free from the fear of failure? Or is it one that heaps the pressure on to make sure they get it right? Is the manager helping them in terms of the dressing room environment to give them that freedom to go and take risks without the fear of failure. From looking at it from the outside without knowing the answers to those questions, you would have to say no. We needed that environment in a Formula One team where we could free everybody up, no matter what you did in the organisation, free them up to take decisions, knowing that these people that we had employed at McLaren were the best of the best. We had the best mechanics, the best engineers. We had the best designers and data people and researchers and production. And everybody was the best. It's elite sport. That's what we do. So if we've got the very best people, surely we should be able to trust those people because they're experts in their little part of the process to make the right decisions. We need to give them the resources and the tools and the equipment and the facilities to be able to make the right decisions, to do their job as best they can. And then we need to trust them because that, of course, has a number of different effects. First of all, it empowers them to feel a little bit more respected by the organisation, a little bit more important. But it also taps into the resource that is their wealth of knowledge and experience and um, skill sets that were all the reasons that we employed them in the first place. And yet, since we employed them, we put them in a box. We told them that, OK, you are the designer of the pedals of our Formula One car. 
and that that's all they do. So that person looks at pedals that have been designed before, looks at all the other designers around them and says, right, my business card says I'm a designer, pedals. And therefore, that's the box that they operate within. So why don't we free them of that, open up the box, get rid of it, allow them to interact with other people within the organization outside of the design office, talk to people who are going to be using the product that they're designing, the drivers, the mechanics, the engineers, open up the box and allow them to be free to take decisions that may be completely different to what's gone before. You think about the Mercedes DAS system. That's a sort of off the wall, crazy invention in 2020 that nobody had thought about before. And that's the simply the only reason nobody had done it. It wasn't because the rules suddenly changed and allowed people to create something like DAS. It wasn't that the technology had suddenly been invented or created or been allowed within the regulations of Formula One. It wasn't something that suddenly there was a need for a DAS system. So it had driven them to think that way. It was just because those designers had been freed up to think outside of the box. They weren't simply just thinking about the way things had always been done and incrementally tweaking it and changing it and evolving it. They were thinking with a blank, clean sheet of paper. What could we do to overcome some of the problems that we have with our Formula One car? And DAS was the solution. It was brilliance, but it only came from an environment where those designers were free from the fear of failure. DAS could well have gone wrong. It may never have worked. And of course, the risk of that is not only that you may be ridiculed for trying to put some effort into something that was so off the wall that some people would say, well, it was never going to work. The bigger risk is that you've put a huge amount of time and energy and resource into designing something that maybe didn't work, but actually you took time away and resource away from other areas of the car, which might now be falling behind after such a long period of development that perhaps ended fruitless. But the point was the people at Mercedes were free from that fear of failure because the environment around them created was created to such an extent where the management, the leadership had told them that, yes, go down that path, think outside the box, go and learn and expand your knowledge and try something new. And if it doesn't work, that's OK, because what we will get from that, even if the product doesn't work in that moment, is a huge amount of learning and understanding that we can take forward to either the next iteration of DAS, or perhaps we can learn something about how else chassis dynamics work, or how we can learn something else about how we could manage tyre temperature during a race or during safety car periods. None of that work is wasted. It's all part of the process to eventually getting to a period of success. That stuff that would have happened if DAS had never actually made it to the racetrack, if it had never actually worked, would not have been wasted. It would have been part of the success that eventually came. That's what we needed to create at McLaren. And that is exactly the conversation that I had with Martin Whitmarsh. The idea of seeing the risks that don't necessarily work out, not as failures, but as part of that process, was something that Nico Rosberg said to me. I got the lucky opportunity to spend some time with Nico just two days after he won the World Championship in 2016. It turned out to be just one day before he, he announced his shock retirement to the world, something that at the time of the interview I had no idea of, nor did anybody. Nico talked to me about how he managed to win the title that year, what sacrifices he'd had to make, the risks that he'd had to take to get there. 
And he talked about the idea that every time he'd put himself on the line, gone up against Lewis Hamilton in all the previous years and lost out, you know, he didn't see it as failure. He said it hurt massively, of course, at those times, but he saw it as just a stepping stone towards that ultimate success that he achieved in 2016. Every time he went up against Lewis Hamilton in a championship and lost out, he learnt a huge amount. He learnt a little bit more about how to overcome the might of Lewis Hamilton, what he needed to do to overturn the deficit that he was finding at the end of each year. Every one of those failures was a little bit more that added into his own personal knowledge base or data banks that could help him go that one step further when he eventually managed to put it all together. And I thought that was quite interesting in that he never ever saw what we might perceive as failure as failure. He never saw losing out on the world championship in those earlier years as failure. He would never term it failure. It was just learning. It was learning. It was part of the process, part of the journey to get to the ultimate goal. And when you look at that, you can't really argue with that, can you? He set out as a young kid with this dream to become world champion and he achieved it. The ultimate goal in Formula One terms. It doesn't matter how he got there. He worked gradually, consistently, incrementally improving himself to the point where in 2016, he used everything within his power to overcome Lewis. With a bit of luck as well, of course, but he became world champion. He said to me, the biggest risk of 2016 season, the year that he won the title, was that he realised that when he started that campaign, he needed to literally put everything on the line. He needed to risk his family life to be able to put enough of himself into challenging for that world title. He had to ask his wife and children to make huge sacrifices on his behalf. And what he meant by that was he needed his wife to take control of the children, take those pressures away from Nico. He needed to, he needed his wife to accept that Nico wasn't going to be there as much. And even when he was there, he might not be focused on them. He might be focused on the job in hand just through that season. He needed her to take the children away on a Monday so that he didn't have to deal with them, but could focus everything onto learning what happened over the course of that Grand Prix and what he could learn from it to be better at the next one. The risk of that, as he very succinctly put it, was that his family could have very quickly become disengaged and disillusioned with that. It could have spelled the end for his marriage. It could have broken up his family. That's an enormous risk. But a risk that he was willing to take because he knew that he had the right support network around him. The environment around him in his very small bubble of his family, his closest environment, was the right one. It was hugely support, supportive. It was there for him. They discussed it openly and decided to take the risk, knowing what the potential pitfalls of it were, but equally knowing what the potential upside was. The ultimate goal of Formula One. And with that brilliant support network around him, he went on to go and achieve the ultimate success in Formula One. But interestingly, he also said to me that one of the reasons, he said this later, one of the reasons that, that he wasn't prepared to go on and fight again and come back the following season was that he wasn't prepared to take that same risk again. He wasn't prepared to ask his family to sacrifice that much for just another world championship. 
because the potential rewards just weren't quite the same. He'd achieved his goal. He'd asked a lot of his family and he wasn't prepared to ask them to do that again. So he assessed that risk differently after achieving the goal for the following year than he had done while he was still aiming for that goal. So when you and I are faced with decisions, no matter how big or small, because that doesn't even matter, it's how we perceive the size of that decision, the enormity of what we're about to take on, the enormity of the risk involved in it. We need to be in the right headspace. We need to be clear-minded, clear-headed. We need to be thinking straight. We need to assess what the upsides and the downsides are. What are the risks? What's the worst case scenario if all of this goes wrong? Most of the time, believe me, it's nowhere near as bad as people think. My children came home recently with an assignment from school in art and they'd been given a very basic, simple brief. And the way they came home and interpreted that was they said, well, we've got to draw an apple, Dad. We've got to draw an apple for art. And I said, oh, OK, great. Show me the uh, show me the homework. Show me the brief. And they showed me the brief. And uh, there were a number of ways that this brief could have been interpreted. The very basic and obvious interpretation was to draw an apple. And I just said to them, look, what about if you looked at this differently? What about if you interpreted that brief slightly differently? And you don't draw an apple, but you do something a little bit different, a bit more abstract. And they were like, oh, dad, no, come on. Everyone else is going to draw an apple. I just want to draw an apple. That's what the teacher wants, wants to draw an apple. I said, OK, well, think about it this way. I said, your teacher on Monday is going to get 30 drawings of apples. They're going to be sat there at their desk, flicking through pieces of paper, one after the other, with just apples. There's an apple, another apple, another apple, another apple. Oh, look, a really lovely apple, but another apple, another apple. Imagine how excited your teacher might be if eventually she turns over a picture of an apple and underneath is your abstract interpretation of her brief. She'll spend some more time looking at that. She'll spend some time thinking about it, trying to understand your thought process in getting there. She will appreciate that you've put a little bit more effort into understanding that brief and interpreting that brief. And she will be pleased that she's looking at something other than just a basic apple. Because even if you draw the best apple in your class, it's still just one of 30 apples. It's not going to stand out. If you want to be the best, and this is just about life, not just about drawing apples, but if you want to be the best, if you want to be better than everybody else, if you want to be noticed and get to the top of whatever it is you're trying to achieve, you need to do something different. And their reaction at first was that we don't want to be different. We want to be the same as everyone else, because the risk, as they perceived it, was that everybody might laugh at them because they'd done something different. Or that the teacher might think they've just done it wrong if everybody else has drawn an apple. And I said, well, look, well, think about this. If everybody laughs at you for doing this, which they almost certainly won't. If they did, they might laugh for 30 seconds. It's not going to be a thing that lasts all day. And I can almost guarantee you in this situation, the teacher will not think this is wrong. There is no wrong answer with this open brief. And if we explain our thinking behind why you've come up with this abstract version or abstract interpretation, I'm almost certain she'll appreciate that. And one of my kids embraced that idea. The other one was more reluctant and decided to go with the apple, which gave me a little insight into their two different characters and personalities. One seemingly a bit more open to taking risk than the other. And that's totally fine. People th see these things very, very differently. 
The thing about when it comes to making a decision, whether or not to take the risk or not, you know, how do you go about making that decision? Because as we've talked about, everybody sees it differently, but there are still some basic fundamentals underneath all of this that I think should form the basis of a decision. Do you believe in it? Do you 100% believe in what you're about to do? Have you weighed up the risks versus the rewards? Almost always, the risks are not quite as severe as most people will play them out in their own mind. The rewards, though, could be limitless. Have you researched and built a knowledge base and an understanding of what you're heading into? Have you done your homework? Is this an educated risk? That's what Formula One teams are incredibly good at, the educated risk area. Or is it something that you are just so passionate about that you're driven by instinct and a desire to try something or do something because you so desperately want to get the result that you're trying to achieve? An example of that is back in 2005 at McLaren when we were working with Kimi Raikkonen. Many of you remember this at the Nürburgring in a championship fight with Fernando Alonso, a tight battle where in reality, we didn't have the fastest car that year. We had a number of weaknesses in our car, but we'd managed to stay in touch in the title hunt all the way through the season. We get to the Nürburgring and Kimi has this great start to the race. We end up leading the Grand Prix, but he locks up a tyre going into a corner and flat spots it so heavily that it's looking almost like a 50 pence piece. It's got a big flat spot on the tyre and on every revolution is creating a massive vibration that over the course of the Grand Prix gradually gets worse and worse and worse. We can see it in the data back in the garage. We can see it on the TV cameras where the camera's vibrating so much that Kimmy's vision is getting blurred as the latter stages of the race rolls around. The rules that year prevented us from just coming in to make a tyre change. There was a weird rule where we had to stay on the same tyres. But our engineers, our data guys, were looking at these flashing alarm bells going off in the data saying the vibrations are getting so serious, guys, we are going to have to stop because otherwise we risk the car failing, the car falling apart. And ultimately, if that happens, we'll obviously score no points. The problem we had was that we were in this championship fight. We're now ahead of our main rival, Fernando Alonso, who sat behind us in the Grand Prix. If we go on and win this race, if we take the full victory points from this Grand Prix, that's a huge boost to our championship challenge. In a title year where we probably, with the car and package we designed, maybe didn't quite deserve to be at, that, at the front at that stage. So this could be huge if we win the race. The risk of that is that if we keep going, we don't win. We Not only we do not win the race, but we don't score anything. If the car fails, we score zero points. And with Fernando behind us, he'll take the whole lot. That could be a huge blow to a championship challenge. And these conversations were going on in the background behind the scenes. And just like Martin Whitmarsh had said that, that time earlier on in his office, these people were risk averse people. The science and data geeks in the back of our garage only wanted to go with the idea of stopping the car, pitting the car, changing the tyre and argue about it later with the governing body saying that we changed it on safety grounds. If we did that, yes, we'd get to the end, but we'd have already sacrificed position in the race to Fernando Alonso. We'd probably come out of the pits fifth or sixth. We'd take a handful of points, but not the maximum points for victory, of which our rival would have taken them. So these conversations were frantically happening across the radio and across the intercom in the garage. 
You know, everybody's saying, guys, we're going to have to stop. The risk is becoming too great. The thing was that those of us in the garage, those of us on Kimmy's side of the garage, well, we were so passionate about winning, about going for this title. We'd never won a world title with Kimi Räikkönen as our little gang, as our crew. And that would have been the holy grail for us. It would have been the biggest single achievement that any of us had had in our time together. And so there was a passion driving any decisions we were making, as well as the sensible side of the data. Ultimately, there was a safety risk with this decision, because if the car fails, there's every, every chance that Kimi could have an accident at high speed. So we had to involve the driver in these conversations. And eventually, with all of this data, with all of this science and knowledge and understanding that's telling us we're entering dangerous territory with our car, towards the end of the race, in the closing stages, we had to go to Kimi and tell him what was happening. We had to explain in compact form the detail of what we've been discussing and get his input because he was the guy at the wheel. He was the guy perhaps putting himself at the ultimate risk here. But when that question went out to Kimi, I didn't even need to wait for an answer. I knew exactly what the answer would be because mine would have been exactly the same. Do you want to play it safe and come into the pits to change the tyre, but essentially hand over the race victory to Fernando Alonso and probably with it a huge part of our title chances? Or do you want to go for it? Do you want to risk it? Do you want to put everything on the line and go for the big prize? And of course, that's what Kimi said. I knew it would be what it said. We'd even had these kind of discussions in the past. Because some risks, if you want to be the best, are worth taking. We didn't know whether it would work out or not. But if it did, the prize could be huge. And so Kimi, of course, came back over the radio and said, yeah, we're going to go for it. We're here to win. Let's go for the win. We kept going. Kimi drove brilliantly. We went into the final lap of that race, still in the lead of the race with this vibration now so severe, but we only had a handful of corners left to go to the chequered flag, where this risk that we had chosen to take would have been the brilliant, brilliant payoff and perhaps would have helped us to go on for the title for the rest of that season. As you probably know, going into the first corner of that final lap of the Grand Prix, the vibrations became so severe that it shook the front suspension to bits and Kimi spun off into the gravel. He was absolutely fine, but our title chances were in tatters. Fernando Alonso duly walked through the open goal that we had left him to go through and take the race victory and the full points that went with it. And ultimately, he went on to be world, world champion that year. Do I regret taking that decision with Kimi? Not at all. Absolutely not. I would do the same thing again. And you could say, you can look at it and go, well, that's stupid because with hindsight, clearly it was the wrong decision. I don't buy that. Some risks have to be taken through an instinct, a gut instinct, a passion, a, a, a drive that's somehow within you that because the prize is so great and means so much to you that you're willing to risk a little bit more. That was one of those days. I would do it again. We came so close to what could have been a brilliant victory and may well have changed the season for us. Ultimately, it didn't work out. But what we got from that was a massive amount of learning and understanding, let alone the data and the science that we have, we now have in the data banks of, of what components can manage certain vibrations and certain loads, but also just an understanding of how that decision process could have gone. Could it have gone any better? How could we have done things differently? Can we design the car in a slightly different way? A huge amount of learning 
that the other teams just simply don't have because they haven't been through that process. Perhaps they would have played it safe and never broken that ground to get the understanding and the knowledge that we now have as a result of that. And that's the thing, going back to what Nico Rosberg said. There almost is no such thing as a failure when you take a risk like that. Because everything is a learning process. Everything is a stepping stone on towards the ultimate success. We went on to win championships with Lewis Hamilton. Kimi went on to win a world championship later in his career with Ferrari. You know, you can't pinpoint down to that particular moment in a Grand Prix that fed into any of those championships, but it's all part of the process. Undoubtedly, some of the knowledge we gained throughout that season and even in that particular moment and that decision-making process must have contributed to the way we made decisions further down the line. Because when we had to make those decisions further down the line, critical decisions, we had a little bit more experience and knowledge and our own data inside our knowledge set and inside our heads to enable us to make better, more accurate decisions. So when it comes to decision making, yes, you've got to arm yourself with as much information as you can, with as much knowledge, with as much science and data, absolutely. But you have to pair that with what feels right. What could you get if you go through that unopened door of exploration? What could you find on the other side? And the point is, if you don't open it, if you don't go through it, you will never know. And you will always be wondering what would have happened if I'd done it. You have to be yourself when you're making these decisions. You mustn't take risks like this to appease somebody else or to satisfy somebody else's desire for success. It has to be for you. If you're going to put yourself on the line, you have to 100% believe in what you're about to do. You have to be authentic. When Kimi and, and ourselves made that decision on that particular day at the Nürburgring, that was 100% what we all believed in, all of us. There was no question about it. The science and data geeks absolutely were feeding in the information, telling us what the safest thing to do was, but perhaps that's part of their job. The people that actually made the decision were the kind of people who were passionate racers, who were willing to take risks to be better than the competition. That was authentic. They weren't trying to be anybody else. Kimi is only ever Kimi. He wasn't trying to be somebody else. It wasn't a bravado decision. It was a decision that he 100% believed in, as did we. So, yes, arm yourself with as much knowledge and understanding as you can, but then do the right thing for you. Understand what the risks are, but understand what the rewards are. And if you really want the big rewards, if you want to be better than anybody else, then maybe it's just worth taking that risk. And the thing is, if you don't take these risks... Well, we know what the status quo is. We know how things are right now. If we carry on down the same path that we're currently on or the same path that everybody around us is taking, we know the outcome because it'll be the same. And if we're satisfied with that, well, that's up to you. If you're not satisfied with just being the same, if you want to be the best, if you want to be elite level, if you want to succeed, and ultimately, if you want to strive for the happiness that surely everybody's craving, you may well need to take some risks. When the risks come from necessity because the environment changes, we might be forced into making decisions. But if we still fall back to those same criteria for making them, we'll still be OK. And if it doesn't work out first time, we learn from it and we go again. We take the learnings from whatever didn't work and we risk again. We take another risk. We try again. Try and fail 
and then probably try again and probably fail again. And maybe that happens a number of times. But every time you take the risk, you learn something new that the people around you that aren't taking those risks maybe are not learning. You are better armed. You are better equipped for the next time you have to make a decision because you took the risk in the first place. Maybe you would have never looked into the levels that you're looking into a problem if you had never taken the risk and failed at it. When the tobacco sponsorship era ended in Formula One, when the European Union banned the advertising of tobacco products, that was a huge change for everybody. And most people in the sport panicked about how on earth they could possibly deal with this threat to the industry as they saw it. I'm very proud to say that my team at McLaren dealt with it very differently and saw it as an opportunity to do things differently. We took risks, a huge number of risks, some of them very small, some of them more significant, but they may not seem you know, significant and huge from the outside, but the idea was we were doing things differently to the way they'd always been done. That's an inherent risk. Somebody came up with the idea of putting a big glass box in the middle of our race garage to put our VIP guests in over the course of the weekend so that they could be in the heart of the garage getting this unbelievable experience that nobody else in the pit lane could get. The reason we were doing that was because we had to suddenly start thinking about enticing new business in, new partners, new sponsors, something we hadn't really had to do before because the tobacco companies had always been queuing up, just willing to throw money at us. And all of a sudden that was going. So we had to change the way we did business. We had to take some risks. Now you might say, well, What's the risk? There's no risk in just constructing a little glass container in the middle of the garage. But there is. The risk is it's never been done before. The risk is it might not work. The risk is that it takes up space in that garage that we as mechanics needed to do our jobs. The risk is it could hamper somebody else in the team because you're trying to wine and dine sponsors in this fancy glitzy way that somebody else might not see as being so important. The risk is that you spend time and energy and resource on creating something that takes you away from the time and energy resource that might be needed to do some of the more basic fundamental things in your organisation. They're all risks. If nobody's done them before, nobody actually knows what the outcome is going to be. But the point was, coming through that period of time, and that's one tiny example, we landed a deal with Vodafone at McLaren that was a huge deal, unprecedented. It lasted for something like seven years and brought us in a huge amount of money, more money than our tobacco sponsor was giving us prior to that. Because we took some risks and we thought a little bit differently, thinking outside of the box. Everybody else in Formula One at the time was still squabbling amongst themselves about how they were going to deal with the threat to the industry that they saw this changing environment. Instead of seeing it as a threat, we saw it as an opportunity to do things differently and take some risks. And ultimately for us, it paid off. They didn't all work, but we tweaked some of them. Now, pretty much everybody in the pit lane has some kind of viewing area in the heart of their garage to allow VIP guests to be right bang in the middle of the action. It's no longer a risk because it's been proven to work. But we were the first. We took that step into the unknown. It's not huge, but it made a difference to us. And the point is that I want to conclude this with is if you want to be the best, if you want to go out and get a job, if you want to be picked by your sports coach for the team, if you want to get the best marks at school, if you want to win new client business at work, It's no good just being the same as everybody else. Because if you are, why would you get picked? Why why is a client going to pick you 
as an organisation? Why is your sports coach going to select you for the team if you're just the same? He may do, but he may not. If you stand out, if you do something different, if you take risks, you put yourself in a position where that person can't not pick you. The idea of creating an environment where people are free of the fear of failure can be done not just in a Formula One team, not just in a sports team, but it can be done right here at home. When I sat down with my children and talked about interpreting the art brief from their teacher differently, I did that giving them the knowledge that I was there to support them. If it all went wrong, if the worst case scenario played out and their friends laughed at them or their teacher said you got it wrong, they would still have me here to support them because I'm the one that's encouraging them to take the risk. Now, if you are a leader of a team of people at work, do you give your people that level of support? If you're working in an environment at work, do you have that level of support from the people above you? Are you free to take decisions and to take risks and to think differently, knowing that if it goes wrong, you've got the people around you that can help you, pick you up, support you and enable you to go again? That's an environment that's actually pretty easy to create as long as you have trust in the people around you. Ultimately, the biggest single thing that anybody who is at the end of their life on their deathbed, the thing that makes them saddest of all is regrets. Regrets of not doing things in their life when they had the chance. Not asking that girl out in the coffee shop all those years ago, what would have happened? Not starting the business that they always dreamt of starting one day. Maybe not speaking up in a moment when they really know they should have spoken up, but they thought the risk was too great and they would rather just keep quiet. Don't leave yourself open to regrets like that. When people write to me every week asking, how can I get a job in Formula One? I always say to them, find a way to stand out, to do something different. Take a risk, because if you don't, you will regret it. And they say to me, well, look, I'm doing a, a degree at uni and I'm nearly finished. I'm going to get a, a first. I say, well, that's great. You know, you're going to get a bit of paper that says you did this course really well. But thousands of other people will have exactly that same piece of paper and they will all turn up at a Formula One team, present the piece of paper and say, look, I did this really well. Can I have a job? If you are the team manager or the head of a department at a Formula One team or anywhere else for that matter, how are you going to decipher, decide through that, those thousands of applications that all look pretty much the same, that all have the same piece of paper alongside them as a qualification. How are you going to decide who to pick? You're going to be drawn towards the one that's different, a CV that looks different, an application that shows that somebody has put a huge amount of effort or stood out from the crowd, taken a risk. I say to people, look, if you want to be a designer, design something. Just do it at home. Design a new rear wing. Design a component for a car. Look at a problem that a Formula One team might have and come up with a solution. Do your own data research. Do some simulation research at home. These things are all achievable. And the risk of that is that you're going to present something to a vastly experienced Formula One team. Somebody who's so much more experienced than you are in this field. And the risk is you present them with that piece of information or that design or that drawing. And they go, well, thank you for this. It's great. But you've missed this fundamental, this glaring error in your research here that means it won't work. Well, how big a risk really is that? You've been given some advice, some information from a Formula One team that will now enable you to go again and not reproduce that same error so that you can then go back to that team or to any other team and say, here's some new research I've done. Now more accurate, now 
well thought out and without the errors of the previous one. Every time you get feedback from taking a risk, it's a learning experience. If you want to get that job, if you want to stand out, you need to do something different to the way that others are going to do it. That's my biggest single piece of advice. Don't have regrets. Be willing to take new directions that others haven't taken because the fact they haven't taken them means that there's a whole world of exploration on the other side. And I will leave you with this quote from the poet T.S. Eliot that I think sums this up kind of really nicely. T.S. Eliot said, only those who will risk going too far can possibly find out how far it's possible to go. Well, there you go, guys. That is the second episode of this first series of Pit Lane Life Lessons done. And I really appreciate it. If you've stuck with it this far, then thank you so much. And I also need to say a huge thank you to everybody who, first of all, listened to the first episode around teamwork. But if you took the time to share it around, to tell your friends, lots of people sent me messages saying, I'm sharing this with my work colleagues and my team. I'm giving it to my HR department. I want them all to listen to it. That was amazing for me to get responses like that. So thank you. If you sent me a message or if you rated or reviewed the podcast, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that, how grateful I am. It really makes a huge difference, both to me, but also, of course, how to how the algorithm responds to this thing and how far it pushes it within each of these various platforms. So thank you very much. Now, in this part of every episode, what I want to do is go back, look at the previous episode, look at your responses to that episode, some of your comments and suggestions, some of your questions, and see if I can answer them a week or so later with the reflection that I am able to now look back on that previous one with. And I want to do that exactly that now. I've got a question here from Thomas Ellis, and there were so many great questions. So apologies, I can't get through them all. But I chose this one because it actually summed up a number of your points in this, which was really great. And I'll read the question and then we'll go through my response to it. Thomas says, hi, Mark, there's one point which I think I would like to hear your opinion on. There's certainly a lot you can do to build a good team and promote good teamwork. But in my experience so far, the people that make up the team are just as important, if not more so, than all the other factors that contribute to good teamwork. Without the right people, the team cannot perform well. In university projects or at work, if the people are not interested in working hard to get a good grade or outcome uh, and they are not invested in the result, I found it really hard to motivate them to perform well or trust them to do their bit. Often they don't do their bit. I think a major part of good teamwork is finding the right people who are invested in the outcome and want to perform in the first place. Would be interested to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks. Uh, Well, Thomas, thank you for a really great question. As I said, lots of people writing things along a similar note to that. How do you build the high performing team? How do you get the right people for that high performing team? And when you have them, if they're not all motivated by what you're trying to achieve, how do you overcome that? So some great points. First of all, I think let's talk about how you get the right people. Now, Formula One has this luxury, I guess, to some extent, where we have filtered out a lot of the the very best people by the time they all get to Formula One. Formula One, by its nature, being at the very pinnacle of motorsport, has, a little bit in the way we do with drivers, have filtered out the guys that maybe are not in the top you know, 10% of whatever it is they're doing way before we get to Formula One. So essentially we have the pick of the best, which makes life easier, absolutely. But it still 
doesn't mean that there aren't lots of people around Formula One, on the brink of Formula One, even in Formula One, that perhaps shouldn't be there or are not the right people for every high-performing team. So first of all, one of the thoughts I had around hiring the right people, getting the right people into your team, whether that's a work team, a sports team or anything else, for me, what's changed over recent years, one of the biggest factors in all of this is that years ago, perhaps our value, the thing that we could bring to an organisation or to any team over and above anything else was our skill sets or our knowledge, the things we know, the experiences that we've had. Now, those things still have value, but in my mind, their value has diminished greatly in recent times because of the access to information that everybody now has. We can all, with the advent of the internet over recent times, access information on almost any subject we want. We can research it, we can study it, we can become little mini experts in whatever field we choose to focus on. Therefore, that value that we bring because we already know that stuff has been devalued to some extent by the time we start looking for a job. So if our value of the things that we know has diminished, what has replaced that? What is the value that we can bring to a team? And for me, overwhelmingly, it's your attitude, it's your character traits, your personality. The type of person you are is what I'm looking for adding adding the most value to my team. I've been in many situations where I've had to hire people. And if I'm in an interview situation, I'm less interested in what that person knows in terms of their skill sets or the things that they understand, the information they've got in their head. That has some value, of course, but I'm much more interested in what type of person they are. How are they going to work with my team? Are they going to have the right values that to fit with our high-performing team. And to do that in the interview process, I'm, I'm trying to get to know them. It's a little bit like speed dating. I'm trying to get as much information about them out in the short period of time that I've got them sat across from my desk. It's about asking about family life, about their hobbies and interests, and giving them questions where their response will tell me a lot more about their personality than the things that they tell me they've done or the certificates they've got. If somebody has the right character traits, the right attitude, it can go a huge way towards forming a great part of your team. It can go a huge way to fitting into the types of personalities that you already have in your team. The idea that you're all striving for greatness. And so a person that has the right attitude, no matter what they know, can help you with that process. Because if their attitude fits into that, if they're willing to buy into that project, that's great. That works for you. In terms of motivations, once you've got those people in your team, and as Thomas said, if some people are just not motivated by that outcome, if they are struggling to buy into the project, to give it their all to get the right outcome, that's a huge problem. That brings you down as a team. That, that, that's a drain on your resources. But one of the things that I've found over my time over in business and in employment and in working with teams around subjects like this is that Everybody's motivated by something, but actually everybody's motivated by something different, by their own individual motivations. And what you have to do as an employer or as a team leader or as a team in general is help that person to find whatever it is that, that motivates them. Some people are simply motivated by the pay packet that they're going to get at the end of the month. And if that's their motivation, then fine. You know, maybe that's something that you can work with. 
you can perhaps look at things like bonuses. If it's finance, if it's all about finance for them, can you incentivize them with some kind of financial reward? Some people are motivated by self-development. They want to continually improve themselves. And by doing that, they keep inspiring themselves. They keep motivating themselves. Perhaps there's ways that you can enable that process to happen more. Perhaps you can offer them the chance to take courses, to learn through work, to go on self-development courses. There are lots of things that can happen around that that might tick the boxes for a certain individual. Some people want the same outcome as you, but some people, that's just a byproduct. Some people need something else on a daily basis to get them out of bed. Your job as a team leader is to find that motivation. Everybody has something. And they may well not all be the same, but if you can find a motivation that you can tie in to all drive towards the same outcome, the ultimate goal, even if people are coming at it from lots of different angles, you can still perform, you can still end up with a high performing team just by treating everybody as individuals. I talked about this in the episode. Everybody has strengths and weaknesses. Finding each of those and enabling the person to get the best out of each of those is key to getting a high-performing team working. And then ultimately, beyond all of that, if you've still got people in your team that are simply unmotivated, that are just negative and are not interested in getting the right outcome, once you've given all the help you can, once you've tried your very best to work with them, given them every opportunity to improve themselves, to get on board with this team drive for success. Ultimately, if people are not willing to do that, they shouldn't have a a place in a high-performing team. There is no time for people that are going to bring the team down. That's just draining to the process. And this, I think, is a lesson for not just teams of people at work or sports teams. This is a lesson for life. If you, every now and again... Take a look at the people around you, your circle of friends or the people that you surround yourself at work or in business or just in life, even in fact, especially on social media. Look at the people that you follow every day, the people that pop up in your feed on social media every day. If overwhelmingly, when you look at a post from a certain person, it's a negative one, it's complaining, it's moaning, it's bringing you down, get rid of them. Get rid of that person from your follower list or following list. You don't want them in your life if all they do is add negativity. And ultimately, the way to see this is to look around you and say, right, does this person add some value to me and the goals that I'm trying to achieve? Does this person add some value to our team? If they don't, is there a way that you can try and find something that will enable them to add value? And after you've been through all of that process and done your very best, if not, they shouldn't be part of your team. In social media terms, I did this recently myself. I went through my own social media, the people that I followed, and I just cut everybody that I saw as not adding some value to my day. And I cannot tell you the difference it's made. I now see uh, social media as a hugely positive thing. When I pick up my phone to scroll through Instagram or Twitter, it's a much more positive, enlightening experience. I either learn something or I'm boosted in positivity because of the people that I've chosen to surround myself with. 
beforehand, there was a mixture of that, but there was also a bunch of people there that just spent their time moaning and, and complaining and, and basically bringing the world around them down. If you're striving for ultimate success, if you've got this high performance goal in mind, there is no space for people that are going to bring the team down. And that, I guess, Thomas, hopefully answers your question. You work with the people in your team to find their motivations. Everybody has a motivation somewhere. You need to work on a one-to-one basis with that person. Get to know them, get to understand them and find what their motivation is. It may be completely different from the thing that motivates you and gets you out of bed each day, but that's okay. You've just got to find what it is. You give them that opportunity to find it themselves, to work with it, to contribute to the team and show them what the ultimate success might look like. Show them what's at the end of this. Give them the dangling carrot. People will find it incredibly hard to be motivated if they can't envisage what might be there at the end, what might be in it for them. And it may not be the same thing that other people see as their dangling carrot. And at the end of all of that, if you still, having worked your your hardest with the people around you in your teams, if they're not willing to buy into the project, they don't deserve to be on a high performance team. The truth is, there's no such thing as a high performance team with somebody who's not striving for high performance somewhere in it. I hope, Thomas, that answers your question to some extent. Uh, Thank you again to everybody who sent me questions or sent me responses. I, as I said before, massively appreciate it. I'd love it if you could do exactly the same for today's episode on risk taking. And also thanks to all the suggestions for guests, potential guests for this podcast. Lots of you wanted me to try and get DC on the podcast after last week, which I will 100% try and do. Ron Dennis was a big one that lots of people talked about. Again, I'm working hard to try and make that happen. I have no idea if it can. But on top of that, I also have a number of people already lined up for a second series of this podcast where they will join me to talk about the lessons that they have learned from their own experiences in the world of Formula One. So plenty to look forward to. With that basis, I would love it if you could subscribe, follow, rate and review, as I said before. Keep the comments coming. Keep sharing it around, spreading the word, telling the people you know about this podcast. And I will be forever grateful. And I'll see you again next Wednesday for a brand new one. Thanks very much, guys.